like like a fireman's pole, a fire person's pole, a fire firefighter's pole. Sure. I, yeah, whatever it is, I could climb to the roof and then just uh, slide into my office. And I mean, really, I just maybe I just shouldn't come into my office. I, that's the <laughs> secret right there. Oh, my bell, my bell. I don't have my bell, Ben, because I'm thank you, because I'm in my my office office where I, I and I keep my bell in my home office. Look at us. We're uh, we're academicians today at the uh, ac- the the academies, academies of uh, arts and sciences, whatever yeah, agri- it is. That we ag- do. Agricultural and human sciences. I just looked you up on the internet. I and oh, I realized that you're at the agricultural and human sciences department. I am. I am. We. I have gone through. Um, I think it is <laughs> both kinds of sciences: <laughs> agricultural and human. Ag- just agricultural and human. It's like that's that's uh, that's uh, making fun of a very famous joke about what kind of music do you like, both kinds, country and western. Country and western. <laughs> it's I like the ones where I explain my jokes. I think that's from the Blues Brothers, isn't it? It might be Blues Brothers. I like Dude, the ones where you look stuff up on the internet. Yeah, yeah. White guy, two white guys uh, looking up uh, things on the internet. That's the podcast. Oh, speaking Classic. of which, I, I've been I've been listening to a lot of um, uh, uh, Omnibus um, because it's just so good. I just finished the D Day crosswords uh, one. I don't. I've got a. I've got a. I'm I'm way behind on all my podcasts, and I'm just I've just given up on some of them. But um, but yeah, I, and and Omnibus is a good one to dip in and out of. So anyway, D Day crosswords highly recommended. We'll we'll put a link. Absolutely, I listened. I listened to that one earlier this week, and then yesterday I listened to the um, uh, Les Paul. Uh, I think that came up this week. So guitar, guitar stuff. Yeah, I'm partly through that one. I, I'm, I'm all out of order with everything. I'm, I, I'm just, and my thing now is, if I'm listening to a podcast and a better podcast comes in, I just go, I just stop the one I'm listening to, and I go listen to the other one. And it's, 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 I do it's th- chaos. Yeah, I do the same thing. Um, uh, let me let me quote from the movie uh, Blues Brothers. Elwood, what kind of music do you usually have here? Claire, oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, so yeah. So what's going what's going on in your world, Don? Well, I think we should talk about alcohol, and and I don't mean the kind that you drink. Um, I I yes. really want to talk about this. Um, this has been. And a story that's well, it's so it was on the list to talk about um, because of something. Well, I got a text message from Squirrel Chomp uh, on Twitter, um, and and she she uh, what did she say? Oh well, I don't I don't have the tweet, but basically um, she said she she sent me a link to the Wisconsin Public Radio article with the headline: "Some bacteria are becoming more tolerant of hand sanitizers." Study finds, and so I was very intrigued by this, and of course my immediate. My immediate thought was, well, this is just another bogus study, and they didn't, they didn't really do a very good job. And then I actually looked at the study, and I read the study, and I'm like, you know, that's actually a pretty good study. And then, um, uh, uh, and then we, got, we got email uh, from a friend of the show, Ruth Petran, um, who, you know, full disclaimer, works for a company um, that sells <laughs> alcohol-based hand sanitizers, right, and they, right. had, they had some critiques. So I would uh, – we'll, we'll link to the NPR – um, uh, uh, post that Veronica sent to me, uh, that Squirrel Chomp sent to me, but I want to, I want to mostly just look at the, uh, so I put, 
you know what? I we need a few more different colors um, <laughs> to color coordinate. Right, right. Um, uh, here we go. Um, oh, is this it? Let's see. Yeah. So let's. So I want to walk people through the, the the actual study. And so this is uh, this is a study entitled "Increasing Tolerance of Hospital Enterococcus Fecium to Alcohol to Hand Wash Alcohols," um, which. I'm, I'm now I'm realizing that hand wash alcohols is I don't think that's actually correct but whatever um, maybe it is um, uh, and this was published in Science Translational Medicine uh, report uh, it's a report published in Science Translational Medicine which is that's a, like a good journal right like that's an offshoot of the journal Science which is like one of the best the best journals so right um, I'll, I'll, so I read this um, and I highlighted some sections and I, and I want to I want to talk about um, I want to talk about the science. So um, first sentence I will read is from the abstract. It says, uh, well, and so let me, let, me, let, so let me read from the article. Let me offer my opinions, and then maybe you can weigh in, and then we'll, and we'll get to Ruth's comments as well. So, um, but I want, to explain, I want to explain this study or this, this series of experiments they did because it's, a really, it's, it's really a pretty, I think, a really pretty nice piece of work. Um, okay, so what they did was they tested the alcohol tolerance of 139 hospital isolates of Enterococcus faecium obtained between 1997 and 2015, and they found that Enterococcus faecium isolates after 2010 were tenfold more tolerant to killing by alcohol than were older isolates. Now, that's an that's a, that's a sentence from the abstract, and it needs maybe some more explanation because what is ten times more tolerant? Does it mean tolerant to ten times more percent alcohol? Uh, I think probably uh, what it means, and we'll get to this. Is that if you if you look at the log reduction for exposure to a certain concentration, it's a the d value is you know one less, or in other words, you know the log reductions is 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 one less, or or you know tenfold more resistant. So all right, so that's the first bit of text that I highlighted. So the next and and so and again, this is uh, this is something. This is a, a journal article that you probably will not be able to see a copy of. Um, uh, unless you have access to a, a library, um, you know, a scientific library, but but again. we'll we'll link to it because I think it's oh. open access. Is it open? Okay, it, cool. I think so. I think it is. Um, yeah, we'll link to it for sure. And if if someone want you know uh, wants to see it, then then let us know. Yeah, yeah. And and the problem is like it it it, it may show up on my computer and your computer right now, but we're both at our oh, our, our university. Um, uh, um, uh, IP uh, addresses. So. Right, right. Yeah. It says my institution. You're right. You're right. Yep. Okay. Good point, Don. Yeah, that's okay. So, uh, all right. So, the first thing I want to talk about is figure one. Um, and figure mm -hmm. one is a four panel figure, but really it's uh, panel A that's the most interesting. And so, what they, what they have plotted in panel A is uh, it's three clusters of points, and the first cluster of points is labeled 1997 to 2003, and it's uh, log 10 CFU reduction, and it ranges all the way from about a one log reduction down to about a five log reduction. Um, and then uh, the second cloud of points is 2004 to 2009, and again, it's a similar cloud of points. Uh, but now the lowest log reduction they see is about four, and the, the points are, are are skewed upwards, so that there are more 
isolates that have uh, a lower log reduction. Um, and then uh, the last cluster of points is 2010 to 2015. And uh, again, those, uh, those points are further clustered up. And it looks like they've done um, a statistical analysis to show that there's a difference. And so if you, so let me, let me try to maybe explain this in a, a little bit more visual way using, using words. Um, when you go out and you find isolates um, of an organism and you test for resistance, there's diversity, okay? And what they're saying is that the 1997 to 2003 diversity, it's pretty diverse. You have a wide range of diversity. And then over time, that diversity shifts towards the more alcohol resistant. So in other words, if you had this no change, you'd see um, some strains that were resistant and some that were less resistant, and, you, and it would just it wouldn't change over time. And they do they have the, the graph that they show does indicate I think a pretty compelling um, difference over time. Um, now, in that particular graph, what they evaluated was five minutes exposure to twenty three percent isopropanol. Okay, and so it's not the recommended level. Okay, it's a lower level and it's exposure for five minutes. But it's, but it's, you know, you, I mean, you could conclude from that that there is a difference from, you know, from, from time frame to time frame. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, the next uh, couple of sentences uh, that I want to call your attention to, these are on page three of the document. And, and this is um, uh, figure two, and it talks about they used a mouse gastrointestinal colonization assay uh, to assess the transmission of Enterococcus faecium. And so basically, uh, the, the panel that's, that I highlighted of interest, it says, uh, uh, panel B, the results of the contaminated cage floor mouse gut colonization experiment to quantify transmission of Enterococcus faecium are shown. And so what they did basically was they... Um, they, they inoculated cages, they cleaned those cages, um, either they, they put m mice in those cages either, w you know, with or without sanitation, and then they w wiped down the cages with water, and then they wiped down the cages, and then in a separate experiment, they wiped down the cages with alcohol, and then they looked to see like whether the mice got infected by the organism or not. So this is actually, and you can dispute the real-world applicability of this, okay, but it is a real-ish world application. And again, there's criticisms of the study, which we'll get to when we, when we get to Ruth's comments, but, but, it's, but it, it, it's not just simply screening for alcohol resistance in the laboratory. It's actually putting the organisms in the real world doing something to that real-world environment and then putting mice in that environment and looking to see if mice get sick, okay? Yeah, yeah. And, and like a real practical yeah. model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's I thought it's that was pretty real, cool. It's real-world-ish, right, okay? Yeah. Um, the, next, the next point that I want to make, um, it's, it's, a, it's a sentence that I want to call out from page three under the heading, Identifying Bacterial Genetic Factors Linked to Alcohol Tolerance. Um, and it's the first sentence. It says, high alcohol tolerance was observed within distinct Enterococcus faecium lineages, suggesting that multiple genetic events leading to isopropanol tolerance occurred. Okay, so that and that all that all you know make makes sense. Um, figure three is a little bit um, a little bit more complicated to look at. There's a bunch of molecular stuff that I won't pretend to understand. There is a a, um, 
a density plot uh, for alcohol susceptible and alcohol tolerant strains. And it, it does look like there are some clear genetic differences in the strains that are alcohol tolerant, which again, is not surprising. If these organisms really are truly more tolerant to certain concentrations of, of uh, isopropanol, then there's going to be genetic differences, which is why the organisms can tolerate that. So that, that, all, that all makes sense. Um, let me see. Yeah, and then if you get to yeah, on page six, I got a, I've got a bunch of stuff that I've highlighted, and this is in the discussion section. So, um, and I'll, and there's a, a, a go ahead. Oh no, I'm not oh, saying okay. anything. Okay, um, uh, a, a bunch of stuff I wanna I wanna talk about, uh, or wanna I wanna call out from the manuscript. Um, uh, first sentence to call out. However, coincident with the introduction of alcohol-based hand sanit hand rubs and high compliance, there's been a paradoxical nationwide increase in e fecium infections. So. This is what we would call, I guess, epidemiological evidence. In other words, we have more, we have an increase in alcohol-based hand rubs, and, and we'll talk about why, maybe why that happens, at least in the United States, and then a paradoxical nationwide increase in efecium inspection, infection. So that's kind of like, wow, we did this one thing and this other thing, uh, you know, it's, it's correlation, not causation, but it's correlation. Um, uh, let's see, to obtain a practical dynamic range and allow meaningful comparisons between isolates, the tolerance assay used concentrations of alcohol lower than the usual 70%. And so, right, so the, in the first figure I was talking about, I said 23%. And so the usual concentration is 70%. They use less than that. Uh, essentially what they're saying is we use less than that so we could see a difference, which, you know, you could criticize it, but, but you know, I mean, and, and obviously somebody will, but it's, it's, it's a reasonable, I think a reasonable approach. Um, uh, still reading from the article, the, the authors say, we were able to demonstrate that differences detected in this in vitro assay translated to an increased likelihood of transmission for alcohol-tolerant efecium strains when subjected to a full isopropanol surface disinfection intervention. And that's the second bit of evidence that I, that I talked about. Um, uh, still reading from the article. The, this idea is supported by our previous clinical research showing full concentration alcohol-based hand rubs in 20 humans, volunteers, two strains of vancomycin resistant, where we identified a mean uh, 3.6 log reduction, vancomycin resistant, efecium on the hands of test subjects, but a very large, large intersubject variance. I haven't actually looked at this article. This is right in my wheelhouse, though, because this is basically application of these on hands, and they're looking for... And they're pointing out a large intersubject uh, variance, which says that that maybe people um, apply these hand sanitizers not to their hands in different ways. Which again, we've seen with hand washing, we've seen less variation with with alcohol hand sanitizer, um, but we but we see that same uh, variation. So that's you know more homework for me to go look at that article and and, and uh, but but it sounds interesting. Okay, um, a couple more things to read um, from the article, and then and then we're done. They're all from the same page. Um, here's a, a long paragraph. For bacteria, in general, short-chain alcohols such as ethanol and isopropanol are thought to kill by disrupting membrane functions. Penetration of ethanol into the hydrocarbon components of bacterial phospholipid bilayers causes the rapid release of intracellular components and disorganization of membranes. Metabolic engineering of solvent-tolerant bacteria has uncovered major mechanisms of tolerance, showing that membrane transporters are critically important for solvents such as ethanol and isopropanol. Potassium ions and proton electrochemical membrane gradients are general mechanisms that enhance alcohol tolerance. So in other words, we know um, we know that this tolerance develops, and there's reasons that make sense because of biochemistry of membranes. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, last uh, point. We propose here that the significant positive relationship between time 
and increasing alcohol tolerance. Okay, so that's figure one, uh, which has, which we talked about the very first thing. And they give a p-value of less than 0.0001. So this is a, a, a statistically real yeah. uh, difference. Is a response to the bacteria of the bacteria to increased exposure to alcohols in disinfection preparations that more alcohol and and that more tolerant strains are able to displace their less alcohol tolerant predecessors. However, it is also conceivable that Ephesian populations are responding to another factor, and this is a really nice uh, nuance that they get. For instance, modified or acquired transport systems might be conferring acid tolerance leading to improved survival during passage through the GI tract. Secondary phenotypes such as alcohol tolerance are then co-selected um, together with a primary phenotype multiplying multi, uh, multiply the environmental hardiness of the pathogen and together multiply the environmental hardiness of the pathogen. So what they're saying is there could be something else that's that's driving um, that's driving this. It's not actually the ethanol. So I've been talking right, for a this, uh, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and, and this this point I think is exactly um, why they did the mouse, you know, practical study, right? Like that this has gone through some sort of gut system that they're able to make this um, this conclusion, right? Is right. that the, the way that you kind of? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. So we had been looking, if they'd been looking at just the laboratory system where it wasn't uh, exposed to the acid of the gut, then then they wouldn't be able to um, bring up this this factor of, well, maybe what it is is we've got these populations that are going through, they're surviving this, this um you know, you know, kill in, in another uh, environment, which I thought I thought that was really cool as well. Yeah, and so I went I went into this, I went into this with a mindset of oh, this study's going to be BS, and I'm going to be able easily able to pick apart flaws. Um, I didn't find that right. I looked at it and it's like wow, they really did a lot of stuff here, and I don't I don't pretend to understand all of it, but the parts that I do understand. I can I can see why they designed the studies that they did, and I think that there is something there. Okay, now, um, do you? Uh, so do you? And 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 she didn't. I don't know. Um, I don't know if she gave us. We've already mentioned her name. Um, we we can always uh, I, I, edit that out and post. Yeah. Um, I, no, I think I think she's on the record here, um, and and I think she wants us to talk about this. I don't. This wasn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, per, yeah. In fact, she says, as per the comments on the most recent episode, which was the last one, uh, you're going to talk about the study. Um, uh, it's been p- picked up by several media sources aimed at the general public who may not specialize in disseminating scientific or highly technical information. Um, and and in her opinion, uh, the there are f- some fairly major misinterpretations of the data. So. Um, before I get into her comments, do you have anything else you'd like to say? No, I guess the 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 biggest thing that I have, and Ruth gets into this a little bit, the twenty three percent concentration uh, of alcohol in the in the sanitizer is to me an interesting choice. And I get, as you mentioned on page six, they talk about why they didn't go with the recommended seventy percent. what what I want to kind of know is how do you how do you land on? 23% from a is as a practicality standpoint like is this the expectation that if if you have uh, soiled hands and again this this really is focused on healthcare i think but if we try to translate this to our our system in um, in in foods where soiling may uh, soiled hands may affect uh, efficacy of uh, of alcohol based sanitizers it, how is is 23% the right number is the is the question and i don't i don't think that that was really 
that they really explained or, or justified that um, sort of super, super well. Um, they do they do go into that on on page six um, a little bit, but I just I didn't know I, I don't know what what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know it's a good point. How do why, how do they? I mean, obviously, if you're going to do this kind of study and you want to if you want to increase the chance of seeing a difference, this is this is like classic bacterial resistance, right? Like we make in in our laboratory, we routinely make. Um, uh, bacteria resistant to some non-clinically relevant antibiotics so that we can culture them in the presence of the background microorganisms. And the way that you do that is not to hit them with a super high concentration, but you gradually increase the concentration. And so it's a, it, this is a well-known, right? And so, of course, if you wanted to see a difference, you should use a lower concentration than the recommended one. How, how did they land on 23? And maybe maybe they did some preliminary screening um, to, to try to figure out what would be an appropriate concentration. Um, uh, let's see. We developed an alcohol and, killing assay based on exposure yeah. to 20. Yeah, but it doesn't... Uh, it doesn't say why. It doesn't right? say like, why. Yeah. Yeah, from a practical. Like, I, it, they, they essentially say... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll read what you just said. We developed an alcohol-killing assay based on the exposure to 23% VV isopropanol for five minutes because this concentration and time provided a discriminating dynamic range among the facium isolates. Yeah. Oh, so, so they, they picked 20, 23% because it was the right percent to, to give the highly significant difference, right? I right. mean, so that's, it's a yeah. little – but so it, on the one hand, you can criticize that, but on the other hand, that's exactly what I would do. I mean – Right, right. Right. But and, and it's I wouldn't so the, the thing is it's not a criticism of the science. It's it's a how do we use this practically? Right? Like like is this do we have any any justification in the real world about that that twenty-three percent? Or are we looking at and maybe this is a better way and when we get into Ruth's comments to look at this is all right, here's a here's a worst case scenario, right? Like if we if we look at our recommended guidelines of 70% and and we know that we will get differences when exposed to 23%, then we need to set some sort of risk management threshold. And I say we, it's not you and I, it's it's the, the world of risk managers that says, okay, there's some factor in between 70% and, and 23% that we that we need to, to focus on to make sure that if they're super soiled hands that we still have X amount left uh, during the, the process to, um, you know, to reduce the, the likelihood of, of resistance. Is that am, yeah, I, am but, I on the right track? Yeah, I think you're on the right track, but I think that that's that if you could you can chase that all you want, but you're always you're always going to have scenarios where you don't have seventy percent, right? Like, right. I mean, you, I mean, it's it's just it's the real world. It's not like we can just have this magical thing that's always seventy percent. It's of course it's always going to be dilution. You let's say you put on hand sanitizer, then you realize you need to wash your hands, so you wash it a little bit. Well, that puts a little bit of dilute isopropanol in the sink, right? I mean, it, you're always going to get these scenarios where you're putting this molecule into the world and it's going to be diluted. So, I, I mean, I, I think it, I don't think that there's I don't think that there's any practical way to avoid um, um, th th that you're going to have those scenarios, right? You can right, criticize right. it from its uh, an experimental design point of view. So, all right, let's so let's so let's move on. Um, so, so you know, there's a criticism here that um, you sh you know, 23% is not is not the recommended dose, and that's a valid. I think choosing 23 is a valid choice, and then criticizing that is also a choice. The question is, what what 
what else would you do if you wanted to to see that? Because clearly, I think that there's there are probably places in the real world where, because for whatever reason, bacteria are being exposed to 10%, 20%, 23%, 30%, right, right. you know, right? Okay. Um, well, and, and, uh, yeah. and does this, I mean, the, the thing is, we're looking at this in August 2018, you know, uh, let's see, uh, 20 days after it was published, and, and it is the next sort of stab either for this group or others saying exactly that, okay, now we know what it looks like at 23, what does it look like at 5, 10, 20, 40, 60, 80, or whatever, right? right? Yeah. To, to be, yeah. Yeah. All right. And then, so that's the kind of, so, and, and I think we can summarize Ruth's uh, criticisms into two, as she's, she's very nicely numbered and lettered them. So um, the first one is what we talked about. The second one, the authors uh, in Richard Fingers validated their findings in an animal model by exposing mice to surfaces that have been contaminated with bacteria and subsequently disinfected with 70% alcohol. The study is not representative of current practices for either hand hygiene or surface cleaning or, and disinfection as performed, performed in healthcare settings. Of course, right. Um, well, so a couple of things. Um, and we'll, I'll just go through all of her, her letter points here. Um, study was conducted in a laboratory using six to eight year, week old mice. Okay. Uh, I, that's, I don't think that's a valid criticism, but whatever. That's fine. Yes, because we're, we're this, this only tells us about mice of a certain age. Okay, fine. But that's, that's science, right? Uh, the mice were fed high levels of vancomycin prior to the study and high levels of ampicillin during the study. Okay, well, so these are not just mice, not just little little mice, but they're mice that are now being chock full of antibiotics. Okay, uh, now, now that's maybe more of a criticism. Um, disinfection was done inconsistently with an insufficient volume of alcohol to treat the surfaces using an inappropriate application tool, uh, four by four centimeter filter paper. So... That is getting more to a valid criticism, right? Like this is not the way we would typically clean. Uh, well, it's not the way we clean anything, right? It was. It, it's maybe not the right. a good way to disinfect um, mice cages. So okay, fine. Um, the researchers, and this now we're getting to the nut of it. The researchers yeah. failed to include a cleaning step in the design of their mouse cage studies. Okay, right. In other words, we, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, and we'll talk about it again. Um, clean and then disinfect. Uh, so soap and water followed by hand sanitizer. Now, the other thing that, I, okay, go well, ahead. And I, let me, yeah, let me jump in on this one because I think especially from, you know, the, what, what you've done, um, in the area of hand hygiene, the stuff that I've read in, um, hospital or healthcare settings, the, the reason, one of the reasons why we see such efficacy with, um, with alcohol-based hand sanitizer or other uh, hand sanitizer is because we're in a, quote, Richard Fingers clean environment in the first place, right? That, that, we, that we're often not dealing with um, uh, you know, levels of um, debris that will then um, affect the, the efficacy of the, of the alcohol. And I think this is, the, to me, this is where, where I really like Ruth's, uh, Ruth's critique. Like this is, um, it, it, it's where it kind of falls apart um, a little bit. Yeah, and and I would I would say um, my what I'm afraid of is, and I've gone on record, and I'll continue to go on record of I, I really think that we that hand sanitizers are a very useful tool. I think they're a very useful tool in food service. Right now, the food code will not allow you to use hand sanitizers without washing your hands with soap and water first. Um, and let, in a minute, we'll get to um, the the Boyce 
um, uh, not a voice study, but the, the, the voice document um, and the recommendations that may have triggered some of this, this change in, in hospital uh, hand sanitizer use. But I think this is a blow against um, or it, it's, it's, it, 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 it's going to make it harder for me to get what I want, which is I want hand sanitizers to be used in food service instead of a hand wash because people are going to throw this up and say, well, see, if you don't uh, clean a surface first, then you create this uh, ha- resistant population of bacteria. And I guess where I'm concerned is that that will put us in a situation where we are now, which is that people are already not washing their hands when they should be. And, and, I, and I guess, and the other conclusion that I've come to with all of this is that really, honestly, the most important thing we can do is if you're sick, just don't handle food, right? Right, um, right. Uh, but if you aren't sick and you're in a restaurant and your hands are not visibly soiled, I would love for people to be able to use hand sanitizer because I think there's a net improvement in public health. What this study does is it it maybe uh, is a is a criticism that could be used against that statement. And, and yeah, whatever, that's 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 science, right? That's that's the way we play the game. But I still, but I think, I mean, I'm glad the study was done, but unfortunately, I think it's going to make it harder to to uh, if we ever could get hand sanitizers for use in food service as an alternative to a hand wash, um, which I think is, un- which is unfortunate, but let's, let's, so let's, anyway, let's get back to Ruth's continued criticisms. Um, uh, hard surface and high touch objects in a healthcare environment were not included in the study. That's valid criticism. I mean, you know, again, they just use these, these mice cages. Um, and then, uh, the hand hygiene practices of healthcare providers were not considered in the study. Yeah, it's true. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a very comprehensive study. It just needs, there needs to be further, as, as always the answer in science, there needs to be, um, further study. I guess the question is, is anybody going to do anything different now as a result of this study? I certainly think that that using hand sanitizers in hospitals is a good thing. I I would hate to see that go away because of this study, because I think that there is a a real significant benefit, um, because we know that compliance with a soap and water hand wash is poor. And and I and I and and you know they talk about like when this happened and and that it, that it happened at a particular point in time, and there is um, uh, there is a um a document I want to talk about and I don't I don't I'm not finding it but basically it's um it's a, a study uh or not a study it's an article by uh Boyce et al that was published in um uh, a CDC document a CDC um uh, a journal on uh, healthcare uh, and, and and hand sanitizers, and I'll see if I can find it. I'm sure I can find it. I just I found it just the other day. I just didn't put it in the Dropbox. But um, and that and that document came out in 2002, um, which may have driven the increased adoption of the use of hand sanitizer. And basically, what that document said is that because compliance with the hand wash of uh, uh, soap and water hand wash is poor, uh, there's good reasons to use hand sanitizers as an uh, alcohol-based hand sanitizers as an alternative which I think is still a valid, a valid statement. So uh, anyway, I'll try to find that article. But uh, what, so do you, what, would you yeah. have any more on this before we move on to something else? Well, yeah, and, and I guess this is, uh, as anything, this is, uh, we can't look at a paper um, as a um, answering the question or, uh, of where are we with 
alcohol or alcohol resistance in pathogens or in bacteria or whatever it is, right? Like we're, we're looking at as um, a, a snapshot and one that becomes a, a starting point or a progression in this, but not looking, one of the things that, um, that, that Ruth didn't, didn't talk about, and this is maybe because this is hand hygiene in hospital uh, settings, but what does it mean for the pathogens that we have of concern in, in food settings? Um, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to guess too much, um, about what prompted, um, Veronica and, um, and, and Ruth to, to send this to us. But I think that the coverage of it, you know, kind of misses some of this stuff, right? Like it misses some of these, these questions and we have a, a potential to then, uh, extrapolate results and say, so everything is, you know, everything is bad with alcohol-based hand sanitizer or see alcohol-based hand sanitizer is leading to, to resistance in all of these, uh, issues. It's really, this one is, is specific to, um, you know, to one, um, important bacteria in the healthcare setting. Well, right. That's that's a very good point. And yeah, and and, and again, I found the uh, the article. It's from Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report. It says uh, it's it's something from October twenty fifth, two thousand and two, uh, guideline for hand hygiene in healthcare settings. And it's uh, a report by um, uh, uh, John Boyce and Dieter Pite, um, who prepared it. But I think it's recommendations from from an overall uh, committee. And it's it's a it's a it's a great document. Um, people should definitely take a look at it. It's been kind of useful for me as we study this application of these technologies in um, uh, in food service. So. Yeah, so I, you know, it's a, it's a good study, and I I want to really thank um, uh, Squirrel Chomp for pointing us towards it. Uh, I want to thank uh, Ruth for wading in with her comments. Um, it's you know, it's been it's been really. Uh, this is this is this is the fun stuff. This is why I got into science, right? Because this is this is talking about science. It's talking about policy, science policy interface. It's uh, it's it's interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a really it's a good one, and it's I. Uh, you know, going back to one of the reasons why we do the podcast, this is this forum allows us to take that you know twenty five minute deep dive, thirty minute deep dive into a paper and pick it apart a little bit and and say, yeah, we like this, we don't we we don't like this, and let's have a conversation about it. So no, it's it's good. More send send us more of this stuff. I like it. And and I would say too, you know, the 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 message right now is we need more science. Um, I I still believe hand sanitizers um, are good, um, and I uh, I'm going to keep using them. And I still I still firmly believe that they should be able to be used in food service um, instead of a hand wash uh, if you if your hands are clean. Um, and there's nothing uh, I don't want to say there's nothing in this study. This this study does give us pause. Um, but here's the thing. Bacteria are really clever, and they're going to continue to evolve no matter what. Um, and so we need to weigh – it's not It's not as if we have an alternative, right? I mean, we could tell people to wash their hands and not use these alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Um, but that has consequences too, and that has compliance consequences. Um and so, uh, yeah, there's no, there's no magic bullet. There's no perfect solutions. Um, I think this is a, a tool that should still be in our toolkit, and I still think uh, it's a good idea. And I, but again, props to the authors uh, for doing the study because it's 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 a it's a it's an important study that needed to be done. 
Absolutely. Well, let's talk about other bacteria that are smart. Because <laughs> that's kind of what we do. Uh, and I want to go to and and bacteria that are smart and then maybe people that are not smart. Um, I want to move to uh, uh, something that has uh, made made the rounds on social media. Um, and that's our uh, friend, friends of the podcast uh, restaurant Chipotle. And I say friends of the podcast because we talk about them a lot. Um, so uh, as of uh, 10 days ago, there was a, a pretty nice uh, article that uh, – um, we picked up that uh, said, you know, it, was a, it looks like a mystery of what has led to this outbreak. And then uh, over the weekend, I guess it was on um, on Friday, um, some folks. In, so let me let me step back a little bit in case you're coming in this one. Uh, um, unsure what I'm talking about. There was an outbreak in Powell, Ohio, that has led to like a kind of a staggering amount of illnesses. And, and this is where. I want to talk a little bit about that um, as it relates to this case, but uh, this article and, and health uh, officials say that about 650 people reported illness um, after eating at a at a Chipotle restaurant over a, a couple of day period back um, earlier this month in in August, and um, th this is uh, uh, right right before uh, the weekend. Some information came out that said, although there wasn't any um, uh, any food that would that tested positive for any pathogens, uh, including Clostridium perfringens, there was some toxin in stools. In seven of eight people that uh, provided uh, stool samples, uh, found uh, the the uh, the toxin. So it looks like it's a perfringens outbreak. And so. Uh, to me, uh, perfringence outbreak means temperature control issues, and and I think if we look at lots of different uh, foods that uh, Chipotle might have that would be uh, more or less likely to lead to perfringence, I, I would look at something like maybe black beans or uh, maybe the refried beans or red beans that they, that they use. Um, and uh, turns out, um, if we look at the local health um, uh, department inspection from July 26th, there were violations related to food not being held at proper temperatures. Specifically, they observed that lettuce was not properly cooled and dawn, ding, 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 that beans were not held at warm enough temperature. Oh, you know, I would have predicted the meat, but uh, but yeah, it could be the beans too. And in fact, uh, our friend um, Amy um, from the University of Florida, who has a last name too that I will think of in a minute, uh, has Amy actually, Simone. Amy Simone has published on Clostridium perfringens growth in beans. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and I so the reason why I my mind went to beans when this one came on. So I would uh, that was the what the food that I took in the pool. Actually, I took either. Bacillus cereus in the rice or some perfringens in the beans um, was that I, I think with their meats, they they do, um, you know, I've, I've been to Chipotle. I've mentioned that it was uh, prior to the uh, uh, big uh, bunch of outbreaks in 2015-16. It was one of our go-to restaurants. There's a lot of um, meat that gets cooked on site and is, and is used. It's not sitting there and hot holding for very long, but beans are batch cooked. Um, and ah, rice is back. Ah, okay. So sure. Yeah. So I think that's you know uh, th that's where uh, leads to um, more likely you know if it's made in the morning and now we've got um, a, a steam table that's not holding them correctly or uh, a potential for um, a, a batch that's maybe even left out at room temperature. This is you know wh where it might have come from. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and so really interestingly, this I, I want to highlight and we'll, we'll include this link in, in the uh, or in the show notes um, in. Uh, so this is a, um, a situation where we actually have a routine inspection on July 26th and people got sick between July 26th and July 30th visiting the location. That was like the, the exposure dates that I can't think of a, a situation where that happens or where that has happened um, in the past that I know of, right? Like where it just happens to be that someone was there on the day doing an inspection, um, found some stuff, and then obviously people still continue to get sick after the inspection went, uh, happened, but um, that we actually have data from those from those days. Um, so uh, another thing that I want to kind of highlight here, and so this is um, from, and you and I have been um, – uh, critics of Chipotle's corporate response to outbreaks in the past, uh, whether that be challenging CDC's ability to track outbreaks or just do general epidemiology to, um, uh, you know, adding a little bit of uh, lime juice into their salsa to uh, stop the growth of salmonella. Um, one of the things that, that came out was uh, Chipotle CEO Brian Nichols said, quote, Chipotle field leadership will be retraining all restaurant employees nationwide beginning next week on food safety and wellness protocols. And, and so we, we exchanged some emails with a few folks about Chipotle and, and my thought on this was, and I'll, you know, paraphrase my, my quote back in our email conversations is, you, you know, retraining for the third time. Cause this seems to be a common, um, you know, I, I didn't go back and, and do the digging up, but I, but I, I can, uh, and maybe I will for a blog post this week to all the times when Chipotle has said, we're going to go retrain people. Um, maybe the training's not the problem. Maybe, maybe there's something else, maybe, may, or maybe re, maybe they're not doing training in the first place. I don't know. But, it, but to me, just say uh, the, I, I think that's like an empty answer and it's not just Chipotle. It comes up all the time. You see health departments retrain employees, um, for, for food safety and, and training's just one of the necessary steps. You know, if this is a situation where um, there's a, a manager or someone in charge who's responsible for verifying temperatures or to make sure that a steam table is, you know, is held at correct temperatures, retraining of all restaurant employees nationwide probably doesn't doesn't impact that. Um, well, ima fun. imagine if an airline had planes that kept crashing and the airline would just say, oh, yeah, we got to retrain our pilots. Right. Every time. It's like that yeah. works the first time, right? But after the second time, it's like, well, okay, so the retraining obviously didn't work. And so right. what you need to do is you need to put systems in place that prevent the problem from happening when your training doesn't work, right? I mean, that's the, you know, that's the that's 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 the solution because because retraining i mean you you can say that and if people have short memories i guess it works but it's not yeah anyway it's not a uh anyway it's annoying yeah well it's it's annoying it, you know why it's annoying you and i have lamented on this as well this might be why you're you're annoyed it's because i really like their food <laughs> and I, <laughs> I you know i it's been so long i don't remember but i do remember liking it once i haven't i yeah. haven't been back i just haven't been back um yeah, and we will definitely link to um, uh, growth of clostridium perfringens in uh, cooling of refried beans. Um, I, I couldn't find the article because I was spelling uh, Amy's last name wrong. Sorry, Amy, if you listen. Um, and also, um, also authors on that are uh, Lori Friedrich and Michelle Daniluk, who are, oh, we know uh, are known to us and, and friends of the pod. And I think uh, maybe even this might have even been reviewed by an anonymous reviewer um, who's done research with clostridium perfringens and who has a podcast. I'm just saying. <laughs> 
Uh, it, was, well, it, was a, it was a good I, article, I, but I think the reviewer made it better. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, I, uh, I I just sent you a, a link to an article from 2016 uh, from Fortune that uh, details in 2016 when Chipotle reclosed and retrained all of their uh, staff. Uh, this article is entitled "Chipotle Knows What It's Doing by Closing Its Stores." Um, and you know what they uh, should have done is they should have left them closed. <laughs> should have closed. Oh my gosh! With my belt. On Monday, the chain. This is Monday in 2016. The chain announced it would temporarily close more than 2,000 of its locations, while it dedicated time to informing its employees of several new food safety measures to prevent future outbreaks. At first glance, a nationwide closure may seem like a pretty hefty risk and cost, and in many ways it is. Um, but, uh, it, the return on investment, if you prevent those future outbreaks is probably worth it. Right, Don, if you, if you don't, then it, yeah, like you said, maybe stay, stay closed. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and Starbucks did this, um, to combat racism and I haven't seen any racism at Starbucks or heard about any racism at Starbucks, uh, since then. Um, must have worked. So must have worked. But you know what? Um, speaking of Starbucks, uh, I, I went to my usual Starbucks today and it was closed. Not oh. because of racism, but because of reasons that are, are, are unknown to me. They, they, the store was locked and closed. Um, maybe oh, somebody no. overslept. I don't know. I had to go to a different Starbucks. Um, so, well, Hopefully it's still open. Hopefully yeah, it's well, it probably is not closed permanently. I, I'm pretty, pretty sure it's a popular, popular spot. Well, good, good stuff. Um, I hope <laughs> not thought, for you. I just thought you should you should know that. I, it's not really relevant to anything except, uh, you know, I, I I didn't. I'm I was late getting Starbucks today. But not, but you know, actually, the good news is I went to a Starbucks that I hadn't been to usually because the service was terrible, and they recently uh, redid the whole inside. It looks really cool, and uh, the people that were working there were actually good and paying attention and did a good job. My sandwich wasn't quite hot enough, but uh, I got really good customer service. So that the because of my regular Starbucks being closed, this other Starbucks that was kind of in my uh, bad books is now uh, in my good graces. So there you go. Nice, nice. Um, can I uh, can I tell you about a product I like? <laughs> sure. Uh, this <laughs> comes from this comes from a friend of the show, and it's not a, a shout out to any particular business, but um, friend of the show Michelle uh, Michelle Daniluk, who we just name checked, uh, sent us a picture. Uh, last week when she was visiting Canada, uh, OPSEC, I think oh, she's back yes. now, um, and of uh, some things that you probably don't know what they are. Well, and so this is a new segment of the show, um, yes. which is entitled um, uh, Don Learns About Canadian Food from Ben. And so let me, let me just, just for, the, for, the, for the sake of people that don't know what this is, um, let, me, let me describe what it is that I'm seeing, okay? So uh, this is... Um, I guess this is from a store named Country Crocus. I'm not quite I, sure. I, that may be I the name of the so. store. Okay. So, um, but, but here's the thing. Um, if that's the name of the store, then there's also a store named Peanut Butter, um, because there's a, one of these things that has peanut butter. So what these are is no, these are... Don, I found it. Okay. This is from the Country Crocus Bake Shop in, <laughs> uh, I found a Facebook page here okay. that I will link to. We'll link to. Uh, yeah, it's going to be, be awesome. It is in um, uh, Hamiota, uh, Manitoba. It's a bakery. It has uh, a rating of 4.6 with seven votes on uh, on Facebook. So you know this place is, is good. 
Okay, so what? So let me describe what I'm looking at. So this is a styrofoam tray like that you would get meat in. Okay, it's got there's three different ones that are pictured here. They're they've got a like a saran wrap plastic wrap overlap. Um, they cost uh, five dollars and something Canadian. Um, uh, the first one said it's labeled country crocus, and then underneath oh. it says matrimonial slice. The one mm-hmm. in the middle says country crocus. Um, Tradit, I traditional. Tra- okay, yeah, tra- traditional something. I can't quite. Nanaimo, read. traditional uh, Nanaimo. No, tra- see, I don't even know what that is. Traditional Nanaimo. Uh, Michelle, you should send higher quality photographs. Um, and then the 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 third one, it says peanut butter, and then underneath it it says marshmallow slice. So, please, Ben, um, please tell uh, our non Canadian listeners what it is that we are looking at. All right, so. Uh, from left to right here, a matrimonial slice is not just a Canadian dish. This is, I believe, like uh, from our uh, Canadian British heritage. Uh, it is a date date bar, date square kind of thing. Um, in you know in what my, you know what I would call that, Ben? A uh, date, uh, date square. Yeah, date, yeah, yeah. You would, and that's you know that's that's how Americanized you are, Don. Um, and I'm proud of English- it too, Ben. I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> This is I, we don't you know, have the queen on our money anymore, Ben. We fought a revolution for a reason. We can spell Miller Lite L I T E if we want to, right? <laughs> right. Am I right? Am I right, Don? Uh, so yeah, matrimonial slice is a date. It's a date square, a date bar. Uh, not not on my top uh, thirty uh, types of uh, Canadian foods. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna skip to the far right and talk about. Uh, the peanut butter uh, marshmallow slice, um, also not one of my favorite things. Uh, but but again, I don't know if this one's uh, particularly Canadian or not. And I think it's really like um, peanut butter and sugar and marshmallows, and then it it hardens somehow. With I guess with the with the sugar. But what I really want to talk to you about is what's in the middle, and it's the traditional Nanaimo bar. And this very 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 much is a Canadian dish. This is uh, named after uh, Nanaimo, B.C. Um, and if you're from Nanaimo, B.C., BC I've, I've never been there, but really this is the thing that um, that entire um, uh, town, at least in, uh, from, from uh, Eastern Canada, is known for. Um, going straight to the Wikipedia page, um, the Nanaimo bar is, is a dessert uh, item of Canadian origin. It is a bar dessert, which, th- this is the best part, requires no baking and is named after the city of Nanaimo, B.C., on Vancouver Island. It consists of three layers, a wafer and coconut crumb base, which is delicious, a custard-flavored butter icing in the middle, and then a layer of chocolate ganache on top. And that layer of chocolate ganache is a solid layer. And these... I don't know how it came to um, Eastern Ontario, um, according to the, uh, or Eastern Canada and Ontario where I'm from, but the origins, the earliest, this is from Wikipedia, earliest confirmed printed copy of the recipe appears in Edith Adams' prize cookbook from 1953. As long, my my mother was born in 1953, as long as I've been alive, Nanaima bars have been made by my family um, at, uh, at Christmas time, this is a, it's a holiday treat for us where my, my grandmother and my mother would do a bunch of, uh, uh, holiday baking and, uh, Nanaimo bars will, will be created and also, uh, or old English, uh, style breads. Uh, it's delicious. And, uh, and Don, I, 
this might be you're you're going to be receiving uh, some treats. You want a treat for me? You might be um, receiving some Nanaimo bars. I want a treat. I want a treat. <laughs> um, so we will. Uh, so we'll link. We'll link to the Nanaimo bar Wikipedia entry. We'll link to. Um, uh, the city of Nanaimo uh, has a web page entitled the Legendary Nanaimo Bar. We'll link to that as well, as well as um, something I found on the internet searching for matrimonial cake or matrimonial bars. Um, it's from a blog uh, 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 entitled Little Gray Bird, and the tagline is sm- sm- small, soft, pretty, tougher than you think. Um, and, and it's a, it's a blog entry from April 2011 uh, about matrimonial cake, and a little gray bird writes about um, researching this. Um, and I don't, I not, I'm not sure that uh, uh, exactly if, if if she ever track. I'm assuming it's a she tracks down the um, uh, the origin of this. Uh, this blog appears to be uh, abandoned. Uh, or at least not not active. The last post was from three years ago, but we will definitely link to the 2011 matrimonial cake uh, article because it's a it's a very cute little uh, cute little cute little article with uh, a lot of comments on this uh, blog post. So go for it. Well, and uh, shout out to uh, the uh, Country Crocus Bake Shop and Tea Room in uh, Hamiota, uh, Manitoba. Uh, let's go go check if you're ever in Hamiota. Go go check it out. Yeah, we'll link to their webpage, um, the Country Crocus Bake Shop and Tea Room, as you say. And Tea Room, yeah, looks good, looks good. Uh, so, Don, th- this is going to be an ongoing uh, bit, and <laughs> it's not I, a bit. I, it's, it's not it, a bit. Well, what, whatever, whatever we want to call it, it's, it's going <laughs> to be a segment. A, a segment. It's going to be a segment. And uh, when I was in Canada earlier this uh, this year, this summer, I took a whole bunch. If you, if anybody follows me on Instagram at Barflog Ben, you can see all of my Southern Ontario delicacies that I uh, took <laughs> pictures of. And I will, for the next uh, six or seven uh, episodes, I will add those pictures. And then I'm going to be in uh, Quebec City in September, um, and I will uh, take further Canadian uh, food shots. Um, and I promise you, I promise you, that you will get. Um, pictures of uh, poutine and uh, portier from my from my trip to Quebec City because of the, those are the two things that I must eat while I'm there. All right, and we'll talk about those. Oh, good. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for for uh, giving us some some content. Uh, I want to go. So speaking of Canadians and speaking of Canadian delicacies, I want to go to something a piece of feedback that we got uh, about uh, maple syrup. Go for it. All right, so uh, this is from someone who says uh, you can share all details freely. Um, And uh, so we're going to go with uh, deep maple syrup uh, for this, but it's from uh, Stephen Hutto. Uh, Message, my scientist girlfriend from the Northeast, and Northeast, I assume the Northeast U.S., like maybe like Maine or Vermont, um, and not not Northeast as in Canada. I just want to point that out because we're very particular about our maple syrup. Uh, my scientist girlfriend from the Northeast came to visit recently. While she enjoyed listening to an episode of the show, she did wonder when you're all going to talk about food safety. <laughs> hey. Uh, never mind her. You two do a great show. There you go. Thank you, Stephen. That, yes. That I've listened to all the episodes in the archives. If anybody ever asks, all your episodes are very listenable. Okay. Oh, good thank to you, Stephen. That's nice. Um, anyways, I did have a food safety question that came up during her visit. When we had waffles for breakfast at home, she placed the entire glass container of syrup in the microwave and heat it up before the meal. While it was super nice having warm syrup, I did wonder if there are any safety concerns around repeatedly heating and cooling the syrup. I'm thinking no due to the high sugar content and a report that, quote, everybody in the Northeast does it. Thoughts. 
also, I was wondering if you had any opinions uh, about the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Uh, I enjoyed their recent report on extreme eating 2018, and I'd like to know what you think about them as an, organiz as an organization. So two, two questions here. Uh, Dom, what do you think about the uh, heating, heating, repeated heating and cooling of, uh, of, of uh, maple syrup? Uh, I don't think it's a concern. Um, my only concern is the, the the glass, depending on the nature of the glass container, uh, that it might get hot, too hot, and it, the glass might shatter, which would certainly be a, a different kind of food safety risk. Um, we, uh, What we do in my house, um, we haven't been eating a lot of pancakes lately, um, but when we do, uh, we do like uh, real uh, maple syrup, not that uh, Aunt Jemima crap um, that's that's not real maple syrup. Um, yeah. We get ours from up, upstate New York because that's the only true maple syrup, as far as I'm concerned. Um, or maybe New England, certainly not that Canadian crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, we put a small, appropriate amount of syrup into a microwavable uh, safe dish, and we microwave that. So that's, that's, my, that's my recipe for warm maple syrup. Well, excellent. Yeah. Um, we, um, I, this, this may be uh, a... Uh, be maybe I'm not from the Northeast. Maybe I'm uh, from Ontario. We we keep our maple syrup um, in the in the pantry, and so I don't. I, it's always kind of lukewarm. Uh, it's not hot. It's just a lukewarm temperature. Uh, I don't. Uh, we don't. We don't keep it in the refrigerator uh, so much. So uh, and for the exact reason, uh, I'm with you. Really low water activity, high high sugar um, content. I mean, it, it is sugar with just um, maple flavoring that comes from the trees. Uh, natural maple flavoring, uh, and so uh, yeah, I, I don't see it as a as a con uh, as a concern from a growth standpoint. What we could have happened, and we actually don't haven't seen this. Um, we don't keep other condiments in our pantry um, here in the southern U.S. Um, but and mainly because we we did do this same thing with ketchup when we first moved here, and we would find that our ketchup would ferment. Uh, fairly quickly with yeast, uh, usually, you know, probably some yeast that gets into that high sh uh, sugar um, uh, environment. Uh, I don't see the same thing with uh, when it comes to um, maple syrup. Um, hey, I had a question for you though. This is sure. something something that came up, and it's it's not maple syrup, but it's it's honey. Um, and uh, one, and but I think it's kind of the same thing. One of my um, one of my colleagues here at NC State was giving a talk that I was at last week, and um, this individual runs our uh, – his name is Nick Fragadakis, and he runs our entrepreneurial lab. And so he's um, he, uh, uh, very often working with entrepreneurs both in our state and elsewhere about products. And one of the products that he had come to him was an, kind of an interesting product a few years ago, which was fermented garlic in honey. And so, Don, how – if you were – uh, if you thought this was a really good product and you wanted to make it, how would you ferment garlic in honey? If you were to if you were to do it in your home or as a as a business, what does that what does that mean to you? Uh, well, so I to me it comes down to I, I don't so the short answer is I don't know how I would do that. Um, but the short but the but the key questions that I have relate to. Uh, pH and water activity, right? right? What's the pH of the product? Uh, how rapidly does it change during fermentation? What's the final water activity? Um, you know, what are the fermentation conditions? Are you fermenting at room temperature? If so, for how long? Um, it sounds potentially delicious, but it also sounds potentially botulism-y. <laughs> um, uh, we know yep. that botulism spores are associated with honey. We know that botulism spores have been associated with garlic. So... Um, that doesn't make it, make it uh, unsafe just by definition. Doesn't make it unsafe, but it certainly would 
be potentially contaminated. So, yeah. Yeah. So here's, I'm going to give you, I just sent you a link. Go take a look at the pictures. This is how this individual, um, w- you know, w- was essentially doing it. Um, let's take a bunch of garlic cloves and let's put them into honey and then leave them, uh, at room temperature for, um, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, a, a long time, like eight or 10 months. Uh, <laughs> uh pass. Yeah. Pass. Not, uh, no, not interested. Thank you. And so this, this is the, this recipe was, um, here, here's the, uh, I'll, I'll read you very simple. You have a jar with a cover, you have peeled garlic cloves, you have raw honey cause the raw honey makes it really important. And then you have, uh, patience. In a clean jar, place the garlic cloves. You want to leave a little room at the top. Pour the honey in the jar, covering the cloves, but again, making sure there's some space at the top. As the garlic ferments in the honey, it can bubble up. Make sure the garlic cloves stay covered with honey and that you regularly burp the lid of the jar or covering. Let it sit for four weeks or 28 days. The garlic will darken the honey slightly more liquid, and then you know it's ready. Um, To me, this is interesting, so I, I don't have an answer for this. But you you brought up exactly the 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 two points that we that we know about is that um, I, I think we would expect that because how garlic is grown that there is a um, a chance that there would be botulinum spores associated with that garlic and we have um, examples from um, the 70s and 80s of garlic in oil um, so using garlic to flavor oil sitting at room temperature leading to um, to bot illness and toxin formation we also so let's park that right and then we have um also know that uh honey itself has been associated with infant botulism and that it may be a source of bot spores just just on its own regardless of whether it's filtered unfiltered pasteurized raw doesn't really really matter and and to me this is a garlic issue not a honey issue um, or that interface, and I keep coming back to some of the work that Kathy Glass did um, uh, around um, uh, candy apples uh, and listeria. It may be this interface. The, the garlic has some uh, water uh, associated with it that may um, you know, come out of these cloves and sit in what may be a really anaerobic environment in the honey as it encapsulates the, the garlic. So we've got an anaerobic fermentation that's what what this what these individuals want to do um but that water water activity at room temperature at that interface may lead to to some bot issues and it's two things you know just coming back to these two things together maybe it's a bot spore that's in that honey that now makes its way to that interface or it's a bot spore that's associated with the garlic in, in the first place and it's a it's a really interesting one i don't i mean i don't know the answer um, to it, but to me, it seems risky as well. Uh, but, um, the reason why I thought about this was, well, what if I wanted to make garlic maple syrup? I think we're looking at the same situation, right? Low, seems like a low water activity, um, situation, but if I'm going to drop my garlic in there to ferment it in maple syrup, um, I may be changing what the water activity is as that, that, you know, water comes out of that, that garlic clove. Yeah, and I think with honey, it's a potentially lower water activity than um, right. maple syrup. And then, and what you have to think about, and we talk about this in the the NACMIF challenge study course, and it's talked about in the NACMIF document, 
you have to think about interfaces. So what's the pH and the water activity in the honey or the syrup? What's the pH and the water activity in the garlic? And then what's the pH and the water activity at the interface? And you could yep, potentially yep. have a situation where one food is safe because it's low water activity. The other food is safe because it's low pH. And the interface is risky, right? Um, because of, because of the, 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 you know, the fact that the pH is rising for one and, and the water activity is rising for the other. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just posted uh, I just posted a, a comment on the on the post, um, uh, and it hasn't been approved yet. Uh, but we'll see what they said. And I just, I just basically said what I said just now: hard pass. And uh, I, I, I how do you control the botulism risk? So we'll see yep. we'll see if there's any feedback. There isn't. I don't know how old this post is. There doesn't seem to be a date on it. Um, yeah. But uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I mean, there's a bunch. There's 16 comments on it um, uh, from people. But uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if they say anything. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's um, that's there. So uh, you know, thanks to to Stephen for question about uh, maple syrup. I, he had another question that I want to come back to in about CSPI. Mm -hmm. um, so um, so the Center for uh, Science and the Public Interest. It's a um, consumer advocacy group that has done a lot of work uh, related to foods, nutrition, um, food safety um, historically. And and I guess you know, I think I'll, I'll answer this. Um, you know, and, and then turn over to you. I, I think that historically CSPI has done a really good job in organizing other consumer advocacy groups um, around food safety regulations. And I, and I think CSPI, um, uh, the Consu CFA, Consumer Federation of America, Stop Foodborne List, for full disclosure, I'm on, um, a member of their uh, board of directors. Um, uh, CFI, the Center for um, food integrity, I think it is. Um, th they, they do, you know, together have done a Pew, uh, charitable trust that together have been involved in a lot of policy push. Um, and I think that's, that's been, that's been good and it raises the, the dialogue, but, um, I, from a food safety standpoint in the last couple of years, I really haven't seen CSPI, um, be really at the, a part of the dialogue. I think a lot of what they're what they're doing um, is uh, is nutrition related. And they may um, they they pushed a little bit around traceability um, in romaine lettuce, uh, but, but hasn't really been um, in the in the food safety uh, realm too much. And I you, know, you mentioned in your message uh, that uh, you know uh, one of our uh, colleagues who we know from. Um, uh, IAFP and other things. Uh, Caroline Smith DeWall was uh, at CSPI for quite some time, uh, and then moved uh, to um, FDA uh, recently. And I think that's she where she is now. Yeah, that's that's correct. And so I I knew about CSPI from very very early on in my career. Um, the, the main person uh, that I knew about is uh, Michael Jacobson. Um, he was the co-founder, and he was the longtime uh, executive director of CSPI. He's now uh, serves in the role of senior scientist, and we'll link to his um, uh, web page on uh, or his that page that describes him on the CSPI website. Um, uh, and they, you know, they for for a long time were kind of a thorn in the side of the food industry um, because they would talk about additives and they would talk about nutrition and salt and things like that. And if you if you if you look at what um, 
uh, Stephen sent to us, he wanted to comment on the uh, their Extreme Eating Awards uh, for 2018. Um, and it's uh, and so basically this is um, uh, <laughs> I'll read the, the top the top line of the post. Um, Each of these restaurant items manages to cram in close to one day's worth of calories, often accompanied by at least a day's of day's worth of saturated fat, sodium or added sugar. Um, and so it's basically just um, making fun of or pointing out that these are not uh, the, if these are food if these are foods you're going to eat when you go out to eat and you are want to maintain a relatively normal weight um, you would need to not eat anything else <laughs> on the day right. that you eat these foods which I think is as somebody who has been counting calories for for a number of years and who's lost weight by counting calories I appreciate knowing nutritional information. Um, but I have to say that when I first started at Rutgers, um, a lot of my friends in the food industry and a lot of my friends in, in academia didn't like CSPI because they were perceived as being anti-science. Um, that said, uh, Michael Jacobson has a PhD, uh, from MIT in microbiology. So he's trained as a scientist, but he really made his, he really made a mark for himself, I think. And he did a lot of good things. Uh, you might not always agree with CSPI's point of view, but, um, you know, I think they perform a valuable service. I was, I was glad for Caroline when she moved to FDA because I think it's a great position for her. I was sorry to see her leave CSPI because I think CSPI, when they began to take on food safety as well as uh, additives and nutrition, um, it really broadened their their base. And I think it really, you know, certainly in my mind, again, people in the food industry really didn't like Caroline, right, um, for a variety of reasons um, because she was pushing, she was pushing, right? She was pushing for, for change and pushing for things to be different. And, and also she's a lawyer. She's not a scientist. So, um, but I mean, people didn't like Jacobson and he was a scientist. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, my, I, um, I, I have, I guess I respect CSBI. I guess I would say that I respect them. I don't always agree with them, but I respect them and they're, they're good at what they do. And they, and I think they perform a useful service. I think we need to realize that they're, you know, I mean, the standard nutrition 101, there's no, there's no bad foods. There's just bad diets. Right. And, and certainly if you, if you did nothing but eat these extreme, uh, eating awards from 2018, um, you'd be getting a lot of calories and that's, and that's not, and that's not a good thing. So, um, you know, you should eat, uh, eat a balanced diet. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And well, and, and I, I think, you know, uh, pulling it out of the, the nutrition realm, I, I think that CSPI and these other, um, consumer advocacy group advocacy groups play an important role in, um, in pushing discussion and dialogue around food safety. And, and I've been, um, you know, critical of, um, of some of the platitudes that, that, that CSPI and others have, have mentioned in their, uh, messages of like this, you know, uh, changing the law will, will save X number of lives. Uh, you know, I, I think that the laws really are about highlighting what our, what society, says is the bar of, you know, the lowest bar, um, and how they get implemented is really the, um, the issue. And, and, and when the, when the inspector's not there and how people actually follow regulations, all that kind of stuff. But, um, but being able to effectively get food safety in front, you know, here in, in the U S in front of Congress or on the front page of a newspaper, um, and, and pushing for, um, changes within the industry as a voice for for consumers as you know as an advocate I'm, I'm all for that I think it's I think it is a, a necessary um, 
they're they're a necessary part of of our world and and I you know really kind of lament um, you know all of, all of the groups uh, you know putting putting them together um, that that there aren't um, enough technical folks that are serving as as advocates because I think that furthers where those policy decisions get made and uh, and and really can can help move the the food industry and regulatory world forward. So, you know, I, I just wish there were more uh, microbiologists that are in, that were in the world of advocacy. Yeah, yeah, it's and it, it does seem like uh, it's a it's a quite a small group. It is. It is. Um, we have we got we, other stuff. Yeah, we got a lot of feedback. So let's let's let's, let's, let's try to go through some of this feedback uh, pretty pretty rapid. So we'll go uh, oldest to newest. So okay. uh, this is uh, from uh, our good friend uh, Deep New England. Uh, she says. Um, uh, I have a conundrum. I've been teaching how to calibrate a thermometer using an ice water bath made with ice cubes and water. Uh, this is how I taught uh, my class. But uh, but in the last class, a smart person mentioned that crushed ice would be better for a more accurate reading. Um, uh, so uh, her questions are, where can I find research on calibrating a thermometer using the ice water method so I have it handry, handy? Uh, what should school food service staff do if they have access to ice cubes only? Is there a way to get an accurate reading using cubes? And then any other calibration advice you wish to share? So uh, I've got some thoughts. Um, I think the bottom line is that if you have a mixture of ice and water and it comes to equilibrium, it doesn't matter whether it's cubes or crushed ice. The, the idea with crushed ice is it will come to equilibrium faster. And so uh, what you want to do is just to make sure that you have uh, enough time for, for that to happen. Um, uh, one thing you could do is mix up a mixture of, you know, make put fill, fill a container with cubes, fill it up. Uh, the rest of the way with water, and then maybe put it in the refrigerator for a certain period of time um, to aid in that, and then mix it, and then let it, you know, maybe uh, uh, 30 minutes before you're going to do the calibration, just to make sure that it, the water is really well and truly at that temperature. Um, uh, I, I I know that Pete Snyder has provided some good advice on that, uh, but I didn't uh, I didn't go and, and look anything up. Do you have any advice? No, I mean uh, a few couple things come to mind on this is that crushed ice is is just really small, more surface area ice cubes, right? So, um, as you said, it's it's just going to take it's going to be a little quicker to get to that that colder um, e equilibrium, um, and that um, it, for the most part, whenever we're calibrating you know thermometers, there's still going to be um, error in in the measurement. So I think we're probably looking at um, you know, for deep New England, parsing the difference between one or one or two degrees, and at, and and that um, won't make that much difference. It, however, the calibration happens. Um, you know, whether, whether we get whether it's set at thirty two, we still have this error of one or two degrees, depending on a, on a piece of equipment. Um, uh, the other oh, before we move off uh, of deep New England, I don't know if we've like actually thank deep new england deep new england sent us treats oh and yes my, my my treats my treats arrived and then they were lost in my office for for a little bit and then they re-arrived on on someone's desk um but but she sent us really really nice um food safety talk coasters and so i just wanted to thank her for that and i, t I thanked her already via email but i wanted to thank her on the show if we haven't already. Yes, indeed. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Um, uh, 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 Ms. New England. <laughs> um, 
the, uh, the next uh, the next bit of feedback is also so she's getting a lot of feedback here. So, but but, but we'll we'll go quick. Uh, so yeah. um, so again, more more from uh, Deep New England. Um, uh, this is a question from a consumer. Uh, she says she's searched online and found lots of information and recipes for making, quote, fruit scrap vinegar, uh, but none from credible food safety oriented sources. Um, uh, and so the question is, does anybody know about making vinegar uh, using jam making byproducts such as pits, seeds, hulls and culls? I've started this project and could use some guidance. Um <clears throat> They are uh, trying to do this fermentation with SCOBY, where SCOBY is the S-C-O-B-Y, the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast, which is used in making kombucha. So um, this, um, this, I don't know, this, I, I really worry about these recipes um, where um, you, you're doing home fermentation. Um, you know, we've talked before, uh, you wrote on Barf Blog, and we've talked before on um, uh, this, ep- uh, this, this podcast about Pruno, which is jailhouse hooch, uh, and people have given themselves botulism from doing that, and so you really do, uh, you really do have to be, uh, have to be d- careful. Um, we did reach out to a friend of the show, Randy Warabo, for some feedback, um, and he did get back to me, but I, I'm, I don't think I put it in the, um, uh, in the directory, but uh, what, what are your yeah. thoughts, Ben? No, and I, I've got Randy's response. Um, here and I, I agree with this. So he, um, his, you know, his, um, uh, some of his expertise and, and background is in you know beverages and, and fermentation. So he does a lot of work. And his thought was the fruits themselves, if you know, as long as we're they're coming um, from a, a program where they're or from a, a producer that is following some sort of gaps, um, good agricultural practices, there shouldn't be a really high risk for. Um, to use those byproducts from a uh, microbiological standpoint. Um, but chemical hazards are higher uh, compared to the pulp of fl- flesh that's used for jam. And so he talked about uh, mycotoxins. If there's a delay in use for mold growth that wouldn't be taken um, uh, t- taken care of through the fermentation process. And then um, you know, cyanide in seeds and pits uh, and being able to, to concentrate some of that. Um, and so, yeah, no, I mean... I. I, I think what what's really screaming to me is that we're only going to get more questions like deep New England's questions um, on on fermentation. We've talked about it a lot, and I know that Marisa Bunning at uh, Colorado State's done some work on uh, fermentation on kimchi and kombucha. Um, and, and there's commercial kombucha and then there's home kombucha. And it, it, one, you know, one of the things that I want to – want to say is we we probably as extension folks need to to start um putting together some work to do some of the some some you know proposals are asking for some funds to do some of this work to answer some of these questions because i think we're we're guessing out a lot of stuff right now and as you highlighted in your message um you looked for um fruit fruit scrap vinegar from any extension or land grant uh um spot and, and couldn't really find any anything out there on guidance for this yeah, and so what that means is that we don't have any advice, right? So we we can't yeah. we can't because there's nothing that's that's science based that we know about, and we're just like guessing, right? Right. Yeah, and well, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna guess. I'm just gonna say what the risks are, right? And the and the risks right. are, you know, it's you, you, there's risks, right? And you need to manage them. And and yeah, somebody should give some extension people some money so we could uh, we could help them. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Um, one uh, bit that I had original from uh, also from Deep New England that I had missed, um, and so uh, 
in Food Safety Talk 59, you mentioned work in a non-traditional food safety ma- uh, work on a non-traditional food safety manager curriculum. Um, yeah. Is that available for for um, uh, sharing? And then Ben, this is this is really t- came to me because I, I get the ones from the website, but it, this is really a question for you. So go for it. Yeah. So so great great question. Not yet. Um, but um, in in a couple of months, uh, we're going to be presenting um, some information on the program. We uh, it's it's branded uh, Safe Plates. It's a um, is the name of the, the my my overall safety program. Um, but also it's, a, it's something called a Safe Plates Certified Food Protection Manager program. We base the um, the course curricula on outbreaks and uh, teach managers uh, food safety in that way of case studies. So there's, there's module 10 modules of case studies. And and so we've been, we, um, I actually just had to run some numbers on this uh, recently and we've completed, um, just around 2,200 certifications, uh, in our state and have rolled it out through a high school class, um, in, uh, across North Carolina. Um, the, so we have, uh, in our family consumer science program, um, foods two students, uh, who are getting, that's more advanced obviously than foods one, uh, get that curricula starting, um, right now, actually, uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and then we, we hope to, uh, for deep, deep new England and others, we'll be rolling this out nationally later this fall after we were presented at the national association of family consumer science agents, uh, meeting in San Antonio in September. Um, so, uh, we hope by early 2019 we'll be able to train trainers in, in other states to deliver the program, um, and uh, we'll have, we're working on a website where people can come uh, find more information, and I'll talk about it more on on the podcast as we get there. And if you have questions, just email me. Cool. Very good. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, next bit of feedback, um, uh, and this is on uh, pet food safety. Um, uh, in several recent episodes, you disc- – oh, and so this person says you can read my message but not my name. Um, so for reasons that will become clear, um, I'm going to call this listener Pupsicle. Um, uh, in several recent episodes, you discuss the risks of a raw pet food diet. Understandably, giving your pet raw meat is not the safest option. Uh, there's also a portion of the raw pet food market which prepares food by freeze-drying. Is freeze-dried raw chicken – any less risky or is the likelihood the same? Um, and so basically the bottom line is that freezing, freezing will reduce pathogen concentration, but not by much. Uh, based on some work that we've done, uh, it's about an order of magnitude reduction. So, you know, but that's not enough to certainly eliminate uh, pathogens. Uh, once the food is frozen... Freeze drying is actually a very good way to preserve microorganisms, and so microbiologists will often um, use freeze dried cultures as a way to preserve their snot cultures at room temperature for extended periods of time. So freeze drying is actually a great way to uh, preserve bacteria, not a very good way to kill them. Yeah. Hey, um, on this, just to I know we're we're trying to go through uh, feedback quick, but. Um, Freeze drying was part of, as far as I understand, part of that that first HACCP run with, um, you know, sending astronauts into space with food. There was a lot of freeze drying that was happening, and that was one of the processes that was um, that was part of that that HACCP world development. Yes. So really, yeah, more more of interest's sake. Yep. Cool. Um, Okay, so um, feedback on Listeria monocytogenes cold holding uh, from episode 161. Um, so let's see. So this is um, this is just a regular old email. 
um, that didn't come from the website. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. Oh, you know, I, I guess it's just it's just positive feedback. So uh, uh, the person writes, I just heard the end of your podcast that posted on the 18th about temperatures and listeria monocytogenes. Um, uh, very good presentation, and the regulators near, need to hear this a lot more. So this is uh, talking about uh, episode 151, um, uh, and basically the our, you know uh, food in uh, North Carolina. Um, and, and and the differences between holding at one temperature versus another, and we we just anyway thanks to uh, thanks to the listener for um, very positive feedback, and we're we're happy that we can be of value to uh, folks uh, who are regulators. Well, and and I'll, I'll add on this that um, this individual um, also referenced a, a uh, article that was in Food Safety um, magazine uh, that was uh, written by uh, Frank Bryan. Um, and it was about uh, the danger zones, uh, an older um, article. I think it's from 2004. We'll link to that in um, show notes. It's a really, I, I think it's a really great way to look at the danger zone. And um, friend of the podcast, Carl Custer, uh, has talked about this article quite a few times in emails that he sent back and forth um, as well, where it's like we need to look at things as like there's a danger zone, but then there's a really, really danger zone. Yep. And then there's like a you know, less danger zone, but but definitely still riskier than refrigeration or above 135. And Frank Bryan, who I've never I've never met um, at all, I've, you know, just read all of his read a lot of his stuff um, and saw at IAFP a couple of years ago. I think he was uh, provided with a lifetime fellow, some award. Um, but uh, it wrote a really this is a great article for for folks to understand temperatures. Yeah, and it's it's really about time and temperature. And Frank, uh, without using mathematical models, really does a nice job of talking about that. And I think we've linked to that uh, that article before. But by all means, uh, send along the the URL, and we'll we'll put it into show notes. It's 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 a good one. It's worth it's worth reading. So, uh, thanks. Yeah, Frank uh, Frank Bryan uh, wears a mean uh, string tie. Ah, uh, oh, nice. I'm gonna we, yeah. Maybe we should get string ties. Food safety <laughs> talks string ties with uh, an FST bolo. Is that, yeah, uh, that's what yeah, it's called. It's right? a bolo tie. Yeah, uh, FSC bolos. Yeah, exactly. show note or show title. <laughs> um, okay, so this is uh, this is from uh, Deep Brazilian Cheese Bread, who doesn't really like his nickname, but you know, whatever. <laughs> He's listening at one point eight uh, one point eight times speed. So um, <laughs> he says, uh, maybe you could drink decaffeinated beverages, so I can crank you up to two x. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, so uh, he asked for. Uh, he says he's, he's listening to episodes on hand washing. He says I used to wash my hands using a set routine involving washing individual fingers, backs of hands, scrubbing back and forth, interlocked fingers, uh, blah blah blah. Um, and so wow, uh, his routine uh, takes twenty to twenty five seconds. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, let's see. What there's a question in here somewhere um, talking about hand dryers, uh, well intentioned bioweapons, uh, thoughts on fecal contamination, unwanted bacterial inoculation of food in a domestic food dryer. Um, Wow, there's a there's a whole lot to unpack here. Um, I guess uh, let's see. So he has a bunch of different questions. Um, one question that he asks is about: um, uh, Is there any research to show about cross contamination if you wipe your hands on your pants uh, when there's no paper towels? Um, 
I don't know. Um, if somebody wanted to hire me to do a risk assessment on this, I suppose I could. Uh, there's probably, um, you know, there is a fair bit of literature on laundry and the levels of contamination on people's uh, clothing. So we could probably do something um, along those lines. Um, uh, his his question, uh, his other question is about uh, food dehydrators. Um, and, uh, and specifically, he's asking about flax. So let's see. So, um, yeah, so this is, um, this is uh, these are recipes that are from the Excalibur Dehydrator website. And there's three different recipes, uh, basic flax cracker recipe, dried cantaloupe recipe, and dehydrated almonds recipe. And so what we'll do is... Um, I suppose we can link to all three recipes. And so I, I uh, looked at the different recipes. Um, uh, and the basically, dehydrating these foods will lower their water activity. Um, but in, uh, at least in the, in the case of the flax recipe, you soak the, the, the flax seeds overnight at room temperature first. And so we know that flax has been linked to outbreaks in the past. So uh, an overnight soak um, may actually promote some microbial growth um, uh, based on the recipe that's used to make these flax uh, crackers. It's 185 degrees Fahrenheit for the first two hours. You're probably going to get some microbial reduction uh, there. The, yep. And it's going to yeah. be wet at that point too. Yes, exactly. Like which, the, which is yeah, good, right? So it's for, yeah, so it's, yeah. it's so from the point of view of food safety, um, if you're going to like make beef jerky or something, you you want to heat it when it's wet first, and then and don't 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 dry it too fast, so you get that kill. Um, the and, and this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and these ones, where, where really the question comes in, and, and it, and I don't, I've got one of these Excaliburs um, that we've done some uh, home food preservation with and and it, it's it, it, once we once we're in our kitchens in my uh, building this is something that I can I, I'd like to take on because what we're really talking about is what's the come up temperature and we'll look at cantaloupes here for as the next one right so you have a cantaloupe like have you have it and then you halve it uh, and remove the seeds you slice the cantaloupe into quarter think quarter inch thick semicircles take the rind off put it in the dehydrator and then you dry it at 135 degrees for 18 to, to 20 hours. And what we don't know is how long it takes for that cantaloupe to get up the cantaloupe itself to get up to 135 degrees, the, to, to equilibrate and what the time temperature combination is over those 18 hours. And then what the water activity is and is it enough time in the wet stage to kill the salmonella that might be there? Well, and um, the bottom line is that if you were, if the alternative was eating this cantaloupe fresh, um, this is not going to increase the risk, right? I don't think. Uh, I don't absolutely. think you're creating yep. an incubation condition if you set the temperature to 135. It may warm up slowly, but I, I, I I've got to believe this is not really terribly risky. Yeah, I. So this one, I I agree. The last one um, that formerly Deep Brazilian Cheese Bread sent us. Um, is dehydrated almonds, and this one confuses me because aren't don't, aren't my like quote raw almonds that aren't really raw, as we know from um, the our, our friend of the podcast uh, Linda Harris, um, aren't they already shelf stable? Like, why do I have to dehydrate them anymore? They they're not. I'm I'm our, like this is the, doing this and whole. So the the. Um, recipe is take take nuts, take water and salt, stir them, 
cover the bowl with cheesecloth and soak for 24 hours, drain and rinse, and then spread them in the dehydrator for 18 to 24 hours. Unless I'm like harvesting these almonds from my almond tree in the backyard, and maybe that's what this is all about, I can't see why I would need to do this with almonds in the first place. Yeah, this this had me. This had makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, it, and as you pointed out, if you're if you're buying raw almonds and they come from California, um, even if they're quote unquote raw, they've been given a four log process, probably by PPO polypropylene oxide, because that's what the Almond Board of California requires for all California almonds. And so um, they're going to be relatively safe to begin with. But why would you add water? and salt and then incubate for 24 hours and then drain and rinse and dehydrate. It just makes, it just makes no sense, right? Why not just, yeah, I mean, why not just um, mix some salt in and eat them? You know, uh, I guess, I guess, I guess it's a way of salting your raw almonds. I mean, that's really essentially all you're doing is you're adding, you're adding salt and then you're, you're dehydrating it. Um, yeah. to put salt on your almonds. And I guess the salt might stick to the almonds better than if you just threw some salt on the raw almonds. But it just seems like a lot of work for no particular reason. Yeah, there is. Um, so speaking speaking of which, we I, I've mentioned uh, in the past that I worked at a bulk food store. This is for our Canadian uh, food segment that I won't go into too much detail this week. Uh, we'll save it for the next one. But one of the things that we sold at this bulk food store was unsalted nuts and salted nuts. And uh, it doesn't matter what what, what kind they were. You, you both both were um, uh, available. And a salted nut in Canada is taxed, and an unsalted nut is a baking <laughs> ingredient and is not taxed. So people would buy unsalted nuts, and then they would want to salt them. And so we also sold, which I'm sure was much more expensive than the cost of the tax, some salting like some salt in a bag that was mixed with flour that would allow it to stick to the nuts. <laughs> but it was I don't know what the uh, combination of flour and, and now thinking back on it, there was no one who was thinking about raw flour risks in 1994 to 1997 when I worked in this uh, in the bulk food industry, as I'd like to call it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was like a flour salt mix that we mixed in the back of the uh, of the bulk food store and then sold like a bag of it for. I don't know, like four dollars, and people would come in and buy that bag. You know, maybe like a pint full of salt and flour mix, and they would add it to their unsalted nuts to avoid taxes. Of course, they would. Of course, right? No one likes taxes, Don. Uh, um, so, yeah, the almond one, I don't know. I don't know. Um, we talked about um, reheating maple syrup already. Yeah, so th- this next one um, it says, uh, hey, guys, love the podcast. I'm trying to find out if there's any possibility of a free write-up mention I, I don't know. Do we ever write anything up for the podcast? I'm pretty sure yeah, that's should, a blog that that writes things no, we up, should, right? We'll, yeah, we'll give we'll give this individual a free write up. Okay. Um, uh, uh, about our fabulous new product in food safety and quality assurance, uh, uh, world, uh, would help our small company, uh, uh, perhaps get some recognition or traction. We just got a study done at Purdue university's Avery food lab that gives hard data on our product that shows that our product is highly effective at changing behavior at hand-washing sinks, uh, to get food service staff, uh, washing their hands. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think about, what do you think about this? I think that um, since they're big fans of the podcast, that they should send us um, <laughs> some data about the that they had at the at the Avery Food Food Lab. Well, there is and, a there uh, is a there is a, a, a thing I, at, on their website that I the, did the, find the, it. The executive summary. 
that's true. Well, let's get the. I, I think I, I don't think we can do the full write up without the full data. <laughs> so if you're listening, you, you know who it is. You know who you are. If you want your free write up, then uh, send us the the free data. <laughs> I think that should do it, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is like I mean, I feel I feel, I kind of was ready to make fun of them, and now I feel a little bit bad because this is a, a small company that's trying to um, you know trying to do. Uh, good work, um, but um, yeah, but basically it's a timer that lets you keeps lets you wash your hands um, for a certain amount of time. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, and I, I'll just tell you that there was, I wasn't the 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 executive summary doesn't tell me enough about it. Okay, and 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 it like like and. And, and and there's so this came up so just to like full you know to to jump in it's as you mentioned it's a it's a group called um, well uh, Santa Timer is the name of the product and they presented Santa Timer at the conference for food protection last year uh, or this earlier this year and I think two years ago as well and some of the stuff that I um, looked at because this uh, executive summary was included in the packet and as as you and I were not on the council when we were sitting um, in the uh, in the audience, I looked at, at this and it, it doesn't, um, yeah, uh, it, it leaves a little to be desired cause there's a lot of like not significance stuff in, in their tables. And I just, I would want to know more about it. So send us more stuff, send us more information, uh, about, uh, about the Santa timer. <laughs> and, and we'll get you a write-up. All right. Um, so this is um, uh, something coming in on uh, double gloving, and this came in via Facebook Messenger from, uh, I don't know if we should identify him, but anyway, it's a, it's a listener to the show uh, who works in um, inspection. Um, and he says, have you guys ever had any discussions around the practice of double gloving in restaurant settings? We see two practices where one uses a very loose-fitting glove that just shakes off after use and another with two tight-fitted gloves and the employee pulls off the outermost layer once it's contaminated or they are changing tasks. Any studies on this topic? Um, uh, any studies on this topic on your podcast? Question mark. And I, I think it's a great question. I did a little bit of research and it turns out that there's a lot of literature in healthcare, but in healthcare, it's really about infection prevention risk, and it's the idea that a surgeon might double glove in case one of the gloves gets ripped um, because it prevents, um, I guess, it prevents the the germs on the surgeon's hands from getting into the person that's being operated on. Um, but the practice of double gloving in restaurants is really different. The idea with double gloving in a restaurant is you're going to avoid doing a hand wash because the idea is that you take off the outermost glove and you can change tasks and you don't need to wash your hands because you, you're, you're still wearing a glove. Um, I, I did not find anything in the literature. There's a brief mention. So there's a, a paper that we probably talked about before, um, which is from you and Todd, uh, entitled Outbreaks Where Food Workers Have Been Implicated in the Spread of Foodborne Disease Part 8. Um, and it's a multi-part series that's written, that's published in Journal of Food Protection. Uh, part 8 deals with gloves. And in that, artic in that article, they really only talk about uh, gloving in healthcare, there really isn't anything. So I didn't find anything. This this article mentions that it's going to talk about double gloving, but it really didn't. It, really uh, doesn't. it, it did say yeah. they were going to talk about double glo gloving in a subsequent article, which is uh, part nine. But I looked at part nine, and there is no mention of it. And so basically, the bottom and they do. Um, 
in the in this article they do talk about um, a study by uh, excuse me Montvillanau, which is out of my lab, which basically showed that gloves are not perfect. There is some penetration or there is some cross contamination that gets on hands even when you're wearing gloves. But it's about a four log reduction versus not wearing gloves, so that's good. So so you know, and thanks for the thanks for the citation. But um, I don't I don't think. I don't think that it's especially risky. I don't think that there's any scientific base. As an inspector, I wouldn't be really worried about it. Um, I guess you could be a bit of a rules lawyer about it and say, well, um, you know, food code says you have to wash your hands after you change gloves and this is just a what if you triple glove and then each time you just take off a glove and you know, it's like, well, if, if you want to do that, I mean, I guess it's I guess it's fine. I mean, I don't I'm not especially worried about it. Um, and you know, if, if it helps people avoid unnecessary hand washes or avoid hand washes that slow them down, because we we already know, and we've I've been on the record many times as saying that you know if people wash their hands every time the food code said they should wash their hands, they you know, and this is not my data, this is other people's data. This says that you'd be washing your hands roughly a third of every uh, working hour. Um, uh, that's just crazy. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on double gloving? No, I just want to highlight, and this may be where this individual's question came from. As I was doing a little bit of digging, we'll send, I'll post this in notes. There was actually an issue that was presented in 2012 to CFP on double gloving, and it was really to um, be part of the hand hygiene committee um, to determine. Were you part of the hand hygiene committee? Is this the one that you were like? Yeah, that was chaotic. I yeah. So I've been part. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been part of the hand hygiene committee for several cycles. I think the la latest cycle, um, the one that we're currently in, there is no hand hygiene committee, and I don't remember talking about double gloving uh, really much at all. I don't know if this made made it through. So I didn't. I, I just found you know because on the CFP site you have um, issues get posted right, and right. so it doesn't have here. Um, whether it made it through to an actual recommendation, but what they wanted was determine if and when double gloving procedures would be acceptable without hand washing. And if so, what would those acceptable procedures be? What glove criteria or standards would need to be met for, for a glove to be considered a utensil and not require hand washing? And the findings of the committee be used to recommend a um, FDA during the 2014 biannual meeting. And so, yeah, I mean, I just don't know... Um, you know where where that went so let's let's keep this sort of parked um and we'll come back to this in our in our next one um and there was some there was an article in 2004 on double double gloving um but i i guess you know what just to to add on to what you're what you're talking about double gloving triple gloving whatever it doesn't really matter if it's done incorrectly and if it's done correctly um then then they're that it can be um, uh, analogous to a hand wash or a change or, or a utensil, right? Like it's just right. a big glove utensil. Yeah. Yeah. I think it makes sense to think about um, gloves as utensils and it would be like, uh, okay, I have a soiled utensil. I'm going to get rid of that utensil and now I'm going to use another utensil, which just happened to be a glove and it was on my hand underneath the first utensil. And as long as there hasn't been a, uh, a, breach in that glove then that you'd remove the outer one and the inner one is is sanitary right uh yeah I mean, makes makes it, sense yeah yeah and in that outer utensil glove like a loose fitting glove to me seems like it's a lot easier to do that with where i can stick my hands into that loose glove i can use it just like a utensil and then i don't need to touch the other 
Like I don't need to do anything to peel them off. I can just like, you know, shake it down. So I'm not touching that second glove, that, that sub sub surface of the first uh, surface utensil glove uh, and contaminating those hands. So anyway, we can, um, let's let's come back to this one uh, and do a little more digging. Yeah, well, we will. And and uh, you sent me a link to the CFP article, and then also there's a 2004 article from Barry Michaels, um, who's a you know I think he's retired now, but was very active in the hand washing world. Um, uh, and it's an article that was published apparently in Food Safety Magazine entitled "Understanding the Glove Risk Paradigm Part 2. And so we'll we'll link to that. So. Um, all right, and then the last bit of fe- I have so I have one more bit of feedback, and then I have one more uh, thing that that uh, came up on uh, Twitter that I want to talk about. And so uh, the 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 last bit of feedback is from a friend of the show, uh, Noro Nerd, um, and she writes to us on Twitter. I had six hours in the car, so I caught up on food safety talk. Here's my unsolicited Mongolian barbecue observations. I'm worried about cross contamination, but because of consumers, okay. Second second post. I've watched people use the raw meat tongs to pick up vegetables or jam the vegetable tongs into raw meat already in the bowl, trying to get more stuff in the bowl. <laughs> On the grill, great, great post, uh, um, Ms. Nerd. Uh, On the grill, they usually cook everything to 365, so not a problem. However, I've also seen people grab food from the line like it's a salad bar, get peppers or mushrooms or whatever to eat raw. I often see it with kids who don't want their veggies cooked. Without active managerial control and monitoring of the line to stop it, it could be a problem. Um, and I, I would say absolutely. And so thank yeah. you, number one, for sharing your observations. And number two, yes, you're right. Um, this is a, a potential we, problem. Um, what what we do, uh, so the, the cafeteria that's near me has a Mongolian grill, uh, but everything is behind the counter. And then you just point and you say, I want some of that. I want some of that. I want some of that. And then the person uh, deals with it with tongs and then makes sure to cook it. So that's the way that it would get managed at Rutgers, at least at this facility at Rutgers. So, uh, but yeah, if it's open to access to the public and you've got raw meat and vegetables on the same salad bar line, that's a recipe for trouble. Yeah, no, good point. I mean, that, and that was something that we was out of our uh, scope when we talked about it last time. So, yeah, good job, Nora Nerd. All right, and the last thing I want to talk about is, and this comes uh, also from uh, Twitter. It comes from a friend of the show, uh, Brett Weed, who links us to a BuzzFeed article. Uh, and it says, an Instagram star's cookbook has been recalled by the publisher after critics say its recipes could be dangerous. Um, Rodale Books has recalled a cookbook written by Instagram influencer jo- jo- Johanna or jo- Johanna Holgram, also known as Fox Meets Bear on the social media platform after critics warned that some of the recipes in the book could be dangerous. Um, ben, have you been following this story? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm all, I'm all over this one. So tell us um, about it. So 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 basically, the, and uh, just to to give the um, uh, full context, the safety aspect of of this cookbook, what's been coming to question is really not microbial safety. Mm-hmm. It's about plants that might be poisonous uh, being included in the in the um, in the book. And so the big thing is um, wild mushrooms and elderberries. And so um, the the book was um, has been recalled, and so I've been following this because, you know, as, as I've talked about on the show before, uh, we published a paper last year on uh, food safety news in in popular cookbook or food safety messages in popular cookbooks, and how if you follow 
many of the recipes you may have um, uh, an increased risk of foodborne illness if you follow their time temperature combinations or you know and sometimes it's omission of information sometimes it's commission uh, where you know it's it's just plain plain wrong um, and this it surprised me and this could just be the power of social media and if you've got fran you know um, fans on the internet and detractors on the internet the fact that it got to like actually recalling this book for safety issues when we showed a lot of unsafe things as well and no one seemed to really care uh that that's where i kind of went with it so um here's the website disclaimer from holmgren's website quote while i strive to be 100 percent accurate it is solely up to the reader to ensure proper plant identification some wild plants are poisonous and can have serious adverse health effects i am not a health professional medical doctor nor a nutritionist it is up to the reader to verify nutritional information health benefits with qualified professionals for all edible plants listed in this website and any published comments and um you know it was um it, it, there were a people that um you know, a bunch of retailers that ended up canceling orders for the books and and recalling it uh crown publishing um said that they are you know discontinuing the publication and promotion of the cookbook so it got really uh, much more excited than uh any of the things that i did uh well and so, I, I wonder i wonder if that's because it's the the risk is different right like yeah, what you're yeah. talking about is like theoretically let me so let me I, I i think it's a shame because i think your message just as much deserved to get out here and just as much deserved you know what what actually happened in this case but the reality is that you were talking about bacteria and you are telling people stuff that they already know, like you should cook your meats and things like that, right? Versus um, this, where basically the, the reason why people were concerned is that the author appeared to be advocating that you go out and you collect mushrooms and you eat those mushrooms or elderberries or whatever, and, and you, could, you could like die from that, right? Or, or you could get really, really sick from that. And so I guess it's, a, it's, it's different, but at yeah. the same time... Um, it's kind of the same. It's kind of the same, right. It's kind yeah. of the same because the, 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 the cookbook author says, well, I'm just giving you things you could try. It's really up to you. And the cookbook authors that you criticize for food safety, they're like, well, yes, we're just telling you to do this, but really you should be safe when you cook food. So yeah. um, it's, you know, it, it risk, people think about risk differently. And I think they think about chemical risk differently than microbiological risk. And it, it's, I mean, that's always been the case. And, and I thought we had kind of gotten over that. And, you know, people are concerned about microbiological risk, but... Uh, apparently not not that much when it comes to cookbooks, which is uh, which is unfortunate because I think you had a good message there. Yeah, and and it could be you know there's lots of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't really know about, right? So um, this this all came out of a BuzzFeed article about it, and so there were experts. You know, it could be a situation where um, a lawyer kind of gets involved and says, "Hey, if someone gets sick from this message, I'm going to sue you." Where where the lawyer friends that that we have and uh, you know uh, call it to to Bill Marler haven't really done that in the same way with our messages right and maybe that's not even Bill's real role but there isn't someone who's kind of like jumping on on our paper and kind of pushing pushing it out there uh, and saying yeah and and testing that case right like it may be a little simpler if it if it is someone says go ahead and buy this um, you know do this uh, according to your um, to our, uh, uh, according to the book and someone follows it and, and then goes and dies cause they ate elderberry 
flowers or whatever. Yeah, and I, I wonder, you know, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody like Bill um, as to, like, what's the... And again, it's not really his ex- area of expertise, but but to get his perspective on like what if a, a cookbook has a f- recipe that's unsafe for food safety versus a recipe that's unsafe because of re- recommending a potentially dangerous ingredient? Is, is there yeah. any is there anything about the law that we're not aware? I, I would think not, but but maybe I don't know. Uh, anyway, but so thanks to, thanks to Brett um, uh, for pointing this article out to us, and then after after Brett had pointed it out to us, uh, somebody else also came along and said, uh, "Hey, um, you know, you guys should you guys know about this. You should talk about it." So, um, so thanks. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that's a show. I, that's all I got. That's all I got too. Um, all right. Well, uh, uh, keep the feedback coming. Te- uh, text us, tweet us, uh, go to the Facebook page. We don't have a Facebook page. Don't do that. Uh, send us emails on our website, and uh, yeah, go rate us on on iTunes and other places. But uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks for your feedback. Um, yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Bye bye. Bye. We should do this show more often, Ben. We have so much always to talk I know. about. I know, I know. Maybe, maybe we do need to. We'll think about that. Like maybe we do. It's hard. Is, I mean, scheduling is hard. Yeah, it's. I. I mean, I, every two weeks works from a scheduling point of yeah. view, and then we just have too much content, and and I guess we're just gonna have to be okay with that. Yeah, and it's okay. I mean, it's like like I've been scheduling two hours for this stuff, right? So. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, I mean, maybe they're just all gonna be two hours from here on out. Yeah. Um. Don't at me. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, just in, you know what? Just listen to it like it's part one and part two, listeners. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And just save one for the weeks that we're off. And it's the same. It's an hour show every week. It's <laughs> just you get them at the same. You get them all at the same time. I don't you should think, be happy. I don't think we've ever made an hour show. I don't. I, I'd have to be. I, I don't sure. think any of them are under an hour. No, that's true. Um. Um. So, sorry, I'm typing the text to somebody. It's Danny's birthday today. Oh, happy birthday, Danny. It, it, yeah, she'll, I'll, I'll pass that on to her. Um, yeah, I also pass on to her that uh, we got more than just shut-ins listening. I know. Well, we'll see. I mean, to be, I guess so, I guess. Some so. of these people we know in real life, they're not shut-ins. That's true.
Um, okay, so let's look at uh, when we should do this again. So we can't do it two weeks from today because it's Labor Day, and I will be at a hockey tournament. And I will be out of the country. Oh, when are you coming back from the from your country from your country house out of the country? <laughs> I will be I will be back uh, I'll be back the following uh, Monday. Oh, where are you going? Uh, Berlin. I'm going oh, for oh, food for Food Micro. Oh. I will see Sweet. I will see a friend of the show uh, Michelle Danilock there. She's also going to be there. All right. So seeing that you're going to be um, out of the country, I'm going to see Michelle Danilock tonight. So there nice. you go. Um, are you leave? When are you leaving? Uh, we, we leave. So the reason, yeah. The reason I'm asking is, could we record next Friday the 31st? We could. And I have to get. So here's my like, um, pro like issue with the 31st. I have a hockey tournament that I'm coaching. I don't know when it starts, but it probably would not be until at least five o'clock that I need to go. So I could do the afternoon the 31st. Except I'm getting two fillings at 11 a.m. or two fillings replaced um, for my terrible old dentist. And my teeth are falling apart, so we could do like an 8:30 to 10:30 slot on Friday the 31st, or like I don't know, two to four, because that'll give me time for the freezing to come out. Let's let's go 8:30 to 10:30. Okay. It, although I think we did an, an episode when I was my mouth was frozen <laughs> in the past. I don't remember that, but I, I think I, I might not have told you. Um, all right. FST. And that is 160. This was 162, right? So this is 163. Yep. All right. Done. 830 till 1030. Cool. I'll probably do, I'll probably do that one from the home. From the home. Yeah, will be there. Yeah, I got. <laughs> I got I got to go into the office that day. Actually, maybe I don't need to go in that day. But anyway, I I can do it from home and then go in if I got to go in. Okay, so. cool. And you get there like you'll leave at 10:30 and that'll be okay. Yeah, cuz I don't I, what I've got is I've got lab meeting at 1. Um, okay. And I I do have to do something because uh Caitlin Kasuli who is nominally a guest member of my lab uh wants to practice a presentation. So Oh. Excellent. Um, but maybe we could do the whole thing. We could just do the whole thing on GoToMeeting. Because um, she's going to be. Because she's going to uh, be remote, right? Yeah, and then remote. My, my students could be remote. So maybe 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 we'll do that um, as a way of. Because I, I don't know. I just really uh, I got to get ready to leave for Germany the next day. So I it'd be great if I didn't have to go into the office. So all right. Well, anyway, it'll all work. Yeah, and then we don't have to wait another week. Yes, until you I get think back, the, so. the fans would like that. So the fans will love it. The fans are screaming for it, Don. Um, cool. All right. Uh, I will talk to you later. All right. This oh, was this mine. Yes, yeah, so it's mine. I got, I got all the links from you. Um, I'll get it posted as soon as I can. Oh, what was the, did you have a, did you have a, a, a name, a show name? I think it's okay. It was a FST Bolo. <laughs> FST. Bolo ties. FST Bolo ties. Good. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.